trekking with us over the summer, we've been going through the book of Thessalonians. Um, today is the closing um, part of that. We're going to wrap it all up. We've been talking about authentic Christianity, what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. Um, so if you haven't been with us, I'll try to give you um, some background um, on it as we go through. But turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through the end of the End of the letter. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. So re- re- read along with me. Uh, starting in verse 12. Everybody got it? All right. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Keep going. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray and then we'll dig into the word. Uh, Lord God, there's no one like you. You are God by yourself. You alone have saved us. You alone keep us. You alone will bring us safe into your presence. And so we pray, Lord, um, that as we look at your word, that you would draw us into a deeper understanding of what it means to be your church and what it looks like to authentically walk with you. Only you can do this. Only you can pierce through distractions. Only you can bring clarity. Only you can truly apply your word to our hearts and to our lives in such a way that it would be effective. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show up that I would get out of the way, and that your people would be transformed by what you have to say. Amen. So um, we've been trekking through this verse just to give you some background. Uh, Thessalonians is a book that Paul um, writes with some help from two guys named Silvanus and Timothy. And he's writing this, this book in the context of um, being concerned about this church. So he, he went to Thessalonica, he planted this church, and then craziness broke out, right? Persecution came, uh, and he was basically driven out of town. And so he was only there for about a couple, maybe three weeks, three or four weeks before he had to leave. And so he wasn't able to give them the kind of teaching and uh, and information and things that would strengthen them. And so he's very concerned about the church. So he sends Timothy 
to go to minister to this church. So Timothy goes there, he checks on them, and he comes back and he tells Paul, they're doing all right. There's some things that, that they need some help with, but they're doing okay. And so Paul writes this letter after Timothy has come to him, um, and we, we kind of trek through um, a number of different uh, things that he's, he's uh, um, talking to them about. At the end of the book, right, when you first look at this list, it looks like just a, a list of do's and don'ts. Right? So he's closing things out, and it's, it's almost as if he was like, okay, I didn't get to talk about this stuff, so I'm just going to dump it all in here and give him some, some do, don't do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Right? That's, why, that's how it comes across. So it starts off with respect those who labor, then it talks about peace, talks about patience, not repaying evil for good, rejoice, do not quench the spirit. Then he keeps going with this list of stuff. And so you're like, what, what is this about? What is the point of all this? Did he just get busy? Was it time to go out for dinner? And he was like, okay, let me just write it real quick and be done with it. But what's going on here? One of the things you have to keep in mind whenever you come across passages of scripture that are like this is that the Lord doesn't do anything just because. Amen. That he is the one, this is God's word. And so it's, it's not as if Paul just got busy and had to just get it all out and walk off to dinner. That God is up to something in these scriptures. He, he's about something. He has a purpose. And so one of the things that I think helps us to understand what the Lord is doing in this verse is to keep in mind the context of what this book is about and what Paul is really concerned about and what the Spirit is really concerned about as he's motivating and moving on Paul to write these words. And one of the things that kind of gives us a clue to that, if you flip back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, he says of this church, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What Paul is ultimately concerned about, what the Spirit is passionate about, is to ensure that this church not just gets started. They had they been started, but he's concerned that they have an authentic legacy of authentic Christianity. That when they stand before Jesus, when, 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 they, when Jesus looks at them at the end of all things, that Paul will be able to point to them and say, Lord, these people are my crown. They have authentically walked with you. I didn't just start the church, but it continued in such a way that you were honored and you were glorified through the, the, the life of the church. Right? And you can see this again, his concern in chapter, uh, in chapter 3. Or, or he says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, when I was so concerned about what was going on with you, he says, I sent to learn about your faith. Why? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I was concerned that you would get off track, that you wouldn't have a real legacy to point to when we stood before Jesus, that, that my labor would have been in vain. The time I spent with you, the, the short time that I was with you would be, would be for nothing. Those weeks would have meant nothing. The gospel I preached would mean nothing because he is concerned with an authentic legacy. And we are a young church. We have a lot of young people here. But when you, as you get older, and my, my older saints will, will, will certainly confirm this, as you get older, you start to think about that L word, that legacy. What, what am I going to leave behind? What is going to be the mark of the fact that I was here? Right? And a lot of us, we, we think, as we get older, we think about our children, or if you're an artist, maybe you think about a work of art that you're going to leave behind, a, a body of music or paintings or, or something that you can say, this is my legacy. I can point to that and say that, that that's, what, that's what the evidence that I was here, long after I'm gone. God himself also is, has a legacy. There's something that he's up to. 
And our, his legacy is to build a church that will eternally point to the fact that he is a glorious and a gracious God. Amen. And so Paul is concerned that when we stand before Jesus, that, that Jesus would, be, would authentically look at that and test it and say, yes, this is authentically mine. This, this looks like what I have been up to in the earth. Right? So as he goes through this list, what he's trying to give them, what he's trying to establish is what are the practices? What are the things that do? Because legacy doesn't just show up overnight. You've got to build it. Right? There are things you do that establish a legacy. If you're an artist, you've got to spend time in, in, your, in your art so that when you leave, there's a body of work there. And it reflects the effort over time, right? You don't do that overnight. And so God is up to something. So Paul, as he's closing this letter, is laying out for this church, these are the things I want you to practice so that when you stand before Jesus at the day of his coming, that there will be an authentic legacy that we can point to, that I cannot have labored in vain. And the same thing we are passionate about here. I don't know about you, but I think about when I'm gone, when Pastor Larry's gone, when everybody has forgotten the name of Pastor Eric Mason, will there be a church here? Will there be an authentic legacy? Will the, will the neighborhood have changed because we have been here? Will lives have been impacted? When we stand before for Jesus, will he look at Epiphany Fellowship and say, yes, there is an authentic legacy here? Or will it be a flash in the pan? Will it be just a fad, a little, something cool that happened in a couple of years and then faded out? One of the, at the last service after I preached a sermon, one of the ladies that grew up in this neighborhood came to me and said, you know what, there used to be a Masonic temple here. This building was a Masonic temple. I didn't even know. There is no legacy there. Nobody, I don't even remember, nobody knows that. She, she is 60-something years old. That could, my fear is that that could happen to us. That 60 years from now, somebody could say, you know what, there used to be a church here. They did some cool stuff, and, and now they just faded into nothing. Will we have an authentic legacy? Right? Will the Lord be able to look at us and say, I am, this is real, this is, this is my church? And so Paul, as he's closing this letter, is seeking to embed these practices, these things that will keep this church authentic, so that to ensure that they have an authentic legacy and that his labor would not have been in vain. So what does he start with? Verses 12 and 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The first thing that he wants to remind them of that establishes an authentic legacy is that an authentic legacy, and again, these are practices, things that have to live through the church. An authentic legacy is established through biblical respect for biblical leadership. An authentic legacy is established through biblical respect for biblical leadership. So he says in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you. And then 13, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, this is, this is about pastors, what he's talking about here. And he doesn't say that directly. He doesn't come out and say, I'm talking about pastors. But he gives the scriptures that kind of limit the options to just being pastors. So, for example, if I said, go down the street and you'll see a building on the corner. It's going to have an M on it and, it's gonna have, and the, the M is going to be yellow or golden. And you would say, okay, you're probably talking about McDonald's, right? I don't have to spell it out for you because I gave you the descriptor that said, okay, that's McDonald's. Same thing here. He, though he doesn't directly say this is about pastors, 
he, he gives a term that lets us know what he's talking about. And that particular term is when he says, over you in the Lord. Now, from 1 Timothy, we know that that, 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 that that responsibility to oversee, to, to govern, to care for the church is something that's limited to pastors. 1 Timothy 5 talks about elders who rule well, right? There's, a, there's a, um, that, that concept of being over, of shepherding the flock. Now, elders and pastors are used interchangeably in the Word of God. It's not there aren't two categories, an elder is a pastor, pastor is an elder, same thing. So what he's talking about here um, are, are, are pastors. He's calling the church to respect the pastor's um, that are over them in the Lord. Now, the focus of the verse is on the respect and the esteem, but he does pull out some, some descriptors, some things that let us know what does the biblical leadership look like. And so we're going to talk about that, but we're going to start where the scripture t- starts, which is with the respect. So why does he call um, to respect? And respect is not just something that you find in this verse. It's a recurring theme throughout scripture. So Leviticus 19 talks about Children respecting their parents. Ephesians 5 talks about wives respecting their, their husbands. And here we, Romans talks about citizens or subjects of government respecting the authorities over them. And here we, hear, we, we have him calling uh, members of a congregation to respect the pastors that God has put over them. What's going on here? What, what, what's the big deal with this word respect? The reason why God calls um, people to respect authority. So wh- wherever he puts authority, he calls people under authority to respect authority. The reason behind that, because God is the ultimate source of all authority. And so he calls those who are under authority because he's the one who establishes authority to respect that authority out of respect for him, right? Because he is the source of all of it. And the, the word respect literally means, it means to, to see, to, to look at, to take note of. It means don't just continue with your business, but take note of the authority that God has put into place. Notice these people, right? And he does so because it's ultimately about him. Romans 13:1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, particularly talking about government. And then he says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There is only one authority in the universe. Everything else is delegated. Everything else flows from him. And so just in the same way, if you, if you ran up on a police officer right, and disrespected him, you would not only be disrespecting that police officer, you'd be disrespecting that which he represents. Right? So if you, if you have an interaction with someone on the street and you yell at them or whatever, right, you probably won't get in trouble for that. But you do that to a cop, and you're probably going to wind up in handcuffs. Right? Because there, there's a difference when you disrespect someone who represents something else. Right? The state is trying to protect the fact that the, we, this person represents the state. Right? So when God puts authority in place, he calls his creation to respect that authority, apart from what they do, out of re- respect for him. For, the, for he's the one who is the source of all authority. Okay? So that, that's, a, that's a key part of why he emphasizes respect here, because it's ultimately about respecting and honoring the Lord who puts these authorities in place. But there's more to it um, than, than that. So the rest of the verse, he, he used another term. He says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there's an element also, so the respect is really tied to uh, we're respecting God. So apart from anything they do, apart from whether or not they're doing a good job or a bad job, they're ultimately accountable to the Lord, and he'll hold them accountable for that. That respect is still owed because God is always the source of authority, and so we respect 
um, those who are in authority. Right? In fact, Jesus himself, when, he was taught, when Pilate said to Jesus, I have authority to crucify you or to release you. Pilate was saying, I- I'm the boss. You should, you should fear me, essentially is what he was saying. And Jesus said, well, no authority is given to you except from above. He made it clear to him, don't get it twisted. The only reason you have authority is because God himself has put you in this place, right? And so all authority is ultimately accountable to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't call those under authority to really um, change whether or not they respect based on how they're doing, right? So Jesus was still treating Pilate with a certain level of respect because he recognized that ultimately that authority flowed from the Lord. And so we are called to do that out of authority, out of deference to God. However, in the church, right, in the, ch- the church is not the government. The church is not this, the state. It's not the police department. It's not a corporation. The church is the household and the family of God. And so there's a little difference. There's, there's a key difference, not a major difference between just general respect and what the Lord is calling his church to in this passage. So you can see that in verse 13, he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There's an affection to it, that it's not just a Hi, boss, I'm going to salute. But there's, a, there's a, a recognition that we are a family together. We're working together. The pastors are serving you. They're, 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 they're laboring in work, as we'll talk about in a second. And so there's a, there's a recognition that it, it encourages people, when they've done work, for you to treat them with respect. Amen? When you do something at your job and you, and, and you work really diligently, it's nice when someone says, thank you. I recognize the fact that you've done it. And again, that word respect means to take note of, not to ignore, but to, to recognize that work. And so there's an element, particularly in the church, um, that is more than just giving the right deference to, but it's also there's a loving and affectionate and a gratitude um, that characterizes that respect. So we're talking about biblical respect. And this is certainly one of the reasons why this is important is because the, the work of a pastor um, is real work, and we'll talk about that in a second. There are financial sacrifices, there was emotional sacrifices, there are all kinds of sacrifices. I remember when I was in college, there was a, a friend of mine who was not a pastor, but in a ministerial type role, and he told me that he craved mundane conversations. He liked to talk about sports and just this randomness, because his life, because of the role that he was in, was filled with dealing with crises. He, he was always dealing with people who were suicidal, people who were having all kinds of issues. He was counseling them. And so he said, I just, I just want to just, just, just do nothing because it's, it's, it, there's a burden on me. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, an appropriate response to esteem someone like that, recognizing the fact that there's, there's work involved in what they're doing, right? And so it's not, ju- it's not just do this because they're an authority, but in the church context, esteem them in love because of their work. Amen? Now, Trek, with me? Okay, so we have, we have, and again, what we're talking about is what are the things that establish a biblical, an authentic legacy, right? So we talk about biblical respect. The second aspect of it is biblical leadership, that, that, that respect, that esteem is, is pointing in a particular direction, and that's towards a biblical leadership. And so let's look at what, what are some of the things that, um, that characterize that leadership, that, that help to, to maintain um, that authentic legacy. The first thing he says... Um, we talk about he said, respect those who labor. He said, esteem them because of their work. One of the first characteristics of biblical leadership is that there is a plurality of leadership. That God, when he's putting leadership in place, is putting in leadership a group of leaders. And they share the authority and the responsibility to oversee the flock of God. So let's flip back. We can see this very clearly. There's a passage in Acts 20 
where Paul is about to, to, to go essentially to die. Um, he's going into, going into Jerusalem to be imprisoned and, and sent into imprisonment in Rome. And he calls the elders of the Ephesians church together and he charges them as a group. So flip back to Acts chapter 20. I think that'll be helpful for us as we look at this concept of what the biblical leadership looks like. So Acts chapter 20, you look at verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, and again, elders and pastors are the same thing. He called the elders plurally to come to him, and when they came to him, he said to them, and then jump down to verse 28, and you'll see that the charge, the nature of the responsibility that's given to this plural group. Right? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He's charging them to, to watch over the flock. And so you can see that this is a charge that's given to the entire group of elders that he's called together. And so that the plurality um, is one of the key characteristics that the Bible assumes uh, when it talks about biblical leadership. And there's a reason for that. We talk about the, the, the labor, that the, the intensity and, and, and the weight of what it means to pastor requires that the work be divided. That it's too much for any one person to bear. And we don't, we don't criticize the single pastor model, but the biblical model and the, and the biblical, the recurring theme is that there are multiple pastors that are shepherding and caring the flock, and they together watch over and care for. Now, the, one, of the, one of the important things um, to keep in mind is that that doesn't mean that there can't be differences in roles, right? So that there's a plurality, but it doesn't mean that everybody's doing everything, right? So even here, I, I'm responsible for a particular area of the church. Pastor Kerr is responsible for a particular area. We divide um, the work so that it can get done, but we, we together are all responsible to do what Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, which is to watch over and care for, right? So even... even um, and that does also doesn't restrict the, 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 that there be a first among equals, a person who might be playing more of a visionary role uh, among that group of elders, similar to Peter. Pat, Peter played the role among the apostles. But the assumption is that there's always a plurality of leadership that's doing that work together. Right? So flip back to Thessalonians. So we talk about plurality. The second thing is labor, right? He said, respect those who labor among you. That biblical leadership works hard. Right? That word, when, when, you, when you look at the nature of that word, it, it means there's something that drains, something that cuts at. That the, the assumption is that the pastors are striving diligently and working hard at what they're doing. That it's not just that there's a plurality of them, but that they are all working diligently among the flock. And that labor, it's not just um, uh, the physical work, but there's a spiritual aspect to it. Uh, if you look, look at 2 Corinthians 11 with, with me, Paul talks a little bit about what this entails. Verses uh, 27. Um, he says, uh, we'll start at 26. He says, I experienced danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, so he's saying, I've struggled through a lot of things. But then he said something interesting. He said, he said, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? I can testify that to being in, in meetings with, with my brothers, praying for the church and literally weeping, 
Because we feel the burden of the church. We're concerned for the church. We want the church to be moving in a direction that's going to bring glory to the Lord. And we, there's nothing we can do about it but cry out to the Lord. And so there's a labor that's associated with being a pastor. That It's hard work. Now, I don't want to discourage for you because the Lord is calling you to be a pastor. It's not slavery, right? First, First Timothy uh, 3 says that if someone desires to be a pastor, they desire a noble task, right? So there, there's, there, it's a noble, it's a great calling, but don't get it twisted. You're not signing up for the lux life. You're signing up for labor, to work hard, to have your strength drained. So there's an assumption that the pastors are diligently working at caring for and, and shepherding the flock, right? So we talked about that there's a plurality of leadership and that, there's a, that these, lab, these leaders are laboring um, actively to serve the church. And then he, then, then he, then he says, um, then, he, then he says, among you. So that this labor is, there's an intimacy to it. It's not just a come in, punch the clock, and leave but that they, they, their lives are open, they're intimately involved in the life of the church, that you know the pastors and they know you. They're committed to a particular flock that they care for, and they're laboring intimately with, with, with that flock. So there's, there's a labor, there's real work, but it, there's an intimacy to it. It's not, again, it's not, the church is not a corporation, it's not a business, but there's a, there's a familial interaction that they're laboring among the flock. But connected with that, if you flip back to... Um, to Acts, where Paul is, 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 is instructing the, the group of elders in Acts chapter 20. He says something interesting to them. He says, I, in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so the, the third characteristic of that, the, the, the responsibility, part of the labor is watching over and protecting the sheep. And in order to make sure that they can actively do that, if you're going to fight a wolf, you're going to need some, you're gonna need a stick or something, right? You're going to need to have something with you, some kind of authority that will help you to defend against that. And so the, the, the elders, the pastors are given a role to be over the church, to govern the church, to rule over the church is another word used. So there's real authority. So along with that intimacy that I talked about, there is actually a, a real authority. There, there's, there's the loving care, but there's also the, the responsibility to admonish, to correct, to rebuke if necessary, to protect the church against the wolves that will come in. All right? And so biblical respect, right, which you talked about for biblical leadership, the biblical leadership is a plurality of, of, of leaders who are laboring among the flock and have real authority to correct and shape the flock. And so that, that practice, right, that, 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 that thing that you, that you do over and over again, the respect and the laboring and the it, working together helps to establish an authentic legacy. If you don't have that, the legacy of the church is threatened. If there's not biblical respect, there will not be, the, the church will not be unified. If there's not biblical leadership, the church is not going to be moving in the right direction. Those lack of that will threaten the legacy of the church. And so Paul lays out that in order for them to maintain an authentic legacy, there has to be biblical respect for biblical leadership. The second thing, so then he keeps going. He says, be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he shifts focus a little bit from 
talking about how people interact with the pastors and vice versa, to talking about the life of the community. And the point that he's trying to make is that an authentic legacy is established through a community marked by peace, care for those in need, and grace. It's established through a community marked by peace, care for those in need, and by grace. He says, be at peace among yourselves. And the, 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 the reason why he calls the church to be at peace among yourselves is because we reflect the presence of God. The church is literally the household of God. It's a, it's a temple built up of people among which God dwells. And where, where, the, where the Lord is, there is peace. If you look at Genesis, when the Lord created all things, he looked at it and he said, it is good. What I have done is peaceful. It's ordered. Second Corinthians says that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That wherever God is, there is wholeness, there is peace there. And so if we are the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Almighty God, and God is really among us, then there should be peace where, where he is. And so he calls the church to be at peace among yourselves to reflect the fact that God is with us. And not only the fact that God is with us, but what Christ has done. Isaiah 9, talking about Jesus, says that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So if this is the place, the household of the Prince, he's a Prince of Peace, and so we have to reflect the fact that he is among us. Ephesians chapter 2, and I ask you to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar and peace to those who were near. Jesus, by his presence, by his work, brings peace. And so we have to be a community marked by the presence of Christ, the presence of God among us, and so that peace should suffuse that temple, that, that we as a people, God is among us, and there's peace there. That is, there's not hostility. There's not anxiety, but there's a sense of peace. And he continues, right, he says, be at peace among yourselves, because God is among you. And then he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The second thing that the community is marked by is by care for the, the, those in need. And he gives three different categories of those in need. He says, admonish the idle, and he talks about the faint-hearted, and he talks about the weak. So different categories of people. And one of the things I want you to notice is that it's not the pastors he's calling to do this. That he's calling the entire church to care for those in need. He's calling the entire church to be at peace among yourselves. And so it's not our responsibility. It's us together being a community marked by these things. But the three categories is the idol. Idol would be those who, who, would, who would fall back from the responsibility that God has given, whether spiritually or, or physically. So, and usually the two are connected. So if you have someone who just doesn't want to go out and find a job, right? just, just lazy, right? usually, almost always, there's, there's a spiritual laziness that's associated with that. Right? There's a spiritual idleness. And so there is a response that he prescribes the community give to that situation, which is admonishment, which is correction. Now, one of the curious things about the idols is that the idol often try to pass themselves off as the weak or as the faint-hearted. I, I, just, I just can't do it, Pastor. I just, I just, this, uh, 
the economy's bad, and I just gotta, you know, I just gotta sleep till about 11 o'clock. I just can't get up earlier than that. Hmm, maybe not, right? But what, what it points to is that, but sometimes people are actually weak, right? And so what it points to is the need to actually know people, to actually have spent some time with people. And so you can say, you know what, you, you, you're trying to act like you're weak, like you really got issues, but really what you need is a little kick in the butt, right, to, to move on, right? So the, 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 it, it requires that the community actually know what's happening, right? Because there are people who are truly faint-hearted. The, the, the Thessalonian church, they were discouraged because they thought that Jesus was going to show up as Pastor Kurt preached, and they were going to miss out on something. And so they were getting discouraged by that. And so Paul encouraged them, right? And so there's going to be a need where you come alongside and encourage someone and say, you know, it's going to be okay. Be that gram grandma that comes alongside and says, it's all right, baby. It's going to be all right. That, that is an appropriate response for some, sometimes. And then there are people who are weak, who, who might need either um, financial help or they, they need help getting to, to the grocery store or wh whatever it is that, that we come alongside and help people. And so we have to have right response um, to those who are in need. And that, that, that marks that community. So we, the community is marked by peace, by appropriate care for those in need, and also um, by grace. That we are a people that have been forgiven much. God has, has so forgiven us, has, has so uh, lavished his grace on us, that we have to be a community marked by that, marked by grace. That, that there, we, we have... And what this points to is that peace is not the absence of issues, right? It's not the absence of stuff going on. It's not the absence of people wronging you, right? He says, be at peace among yourselves. And he says, see that no one repay evil for evil, assuming people are going to wrong you, right? The church is not happy-go-lucky roses and kisses. Stuff is going to happen. But how we respond to that, how we respond to that has to point to the fact that God, again, is among us, that he has been gracious to us. And so when you are wronged and you're going to be wronged, you, you repay that person as God has done with grace, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are you willing to die for your brothers and sisters, even when they wrong you, especially when they wrong you? And so that, 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 that legacy is established through a community marked by peace, by care for those in need, and by an atmosphere of grace. And then he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The church is also, an authentic legacy is also established through joyful, thankful prayer. That we as believers have such a great reason to be joyous. Psalm 43 says, God is our exceeding joy. Yes. That yes. God himself is our joy. Joy is also a fruit of the Spirit, so he bears it in us. So we have that God is our exceeding joy, and he's always been that way. The scripture describes him as the, the one at whom there, there are pleasures forevermore. When, it, when you're in his presence, there's joy, there's wholeness, there's peace, there's beauty. That's who God is. And the scripture then says that God, through Christ, has connected you to this reality, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so you have God our exceeding joy. You have the fact that God will never forsake you. Therefore, you can rejoice always. You, have, you could be in the deepest, dankest, darkest pit on earth, and God is there. Where can I go from your presence? And so if God is always with you, then rejoice always. 
Always be grateful because God has done so much for you that regardless of your circumstances, he is always with you. And so he can, he can say, be grateful in every circumstance because God has so laced you. He has so paid off your debt. He has so blessed you. Ephesians says he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing left to give. He has poured out all of it on you. And so you have to be, there is reason to celebrate, believer. There is reason to sing and rejoice because God has been good to you. And so he says, rejoice always. Be grateful in all circumstances. But then he says, pray without ceasing. Because even though there's joy, even though there's gratitude, there's going to be some stuff. There's going to be trials. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be a need for you to pray, to persevere, to walk with the Lord. And praying without ceasing is basically about praying with faith. Jesus tells a parable of the persevering widow where he says, an unrighteous judge responds to a widow persevering at him because of her perseverance. And he says, if, if this unrighteous judge, this judge who doesn't know God, who doesn't care about people, will respond graciously to someone who perseveres, how much more your father who loves you and cares for you will respond? And then he says, at the end of that verse, end of that chapter, he says, nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes to the earth? And so he's pointing to the fact that to persevere and praying without ceasing is to have faith to believe that God is going to come through even in the midst of your trial. Even if he doesn't answer right when you pray the prayer, you're going to still persevere. You're going to pray without ceasing, always with joy and gratitude. Because if he never answers one more prayer, he's been good to you. And so you still have reason to be joyful, to be grateful, and we persevere in prayer. And so our authentic legacy is established through joyful, grateful prayer. And he continues, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. An authentic legacy is established to being sensitive to the spirit of God. He says, do not quench the spirit. And th there's a controversy about this verse, what does it mean to not quench the spirit? But I mean, basically, quench means to put something out, to, 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 to shut it down. Right? And so the question is, to really understand this verse, you have to understand what is the Spirit doing? What is he up to? What's, what, what's he trying to spark? What's he trying to, to get done? And Jesus makes this very clear in John 16, 13. You should commit this verse to memory. John 16, 13. Flip there real quick. Because it's very important that we as a church, for all believers, know the Holy Spirit and what he's about. So John 16, 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What the Spirit of God is about is bringing glory to Jesus. And so for you to quench the Spirit means you're getting in the way of the Spirit bringing glory to Jesus. That's what he's about. That's his purpose. That's his goal. That's his modus operandi. The Spirit is not about anything else. He's not about bringing glory to any man or even to himself, but about bringing glory to Jesus. And so when he says, do not quench his Spirit, he's saying, don't get so caught up in your stuff. 
Don't get so caught up in your program, your plans, the things, your strategies, the things you want to do, your own wisdom. Be sensitive. Be humble. Listen to the Spirit as He leads you into focusing on Christ. And so if, if you're in an environment, if you're in an environment, if you're in a church where Jesus is looking real good and He's beautiful to you and you're loving Him more and you're seeking to come into a, a closer walk with Him, the Spirit is there. If you're in a place where, the, where anything else is the focus, you're quenching the Spirit. If we as a church get off track from focusing on Jesus, we're quenching the Spirit. So you've got to be sensitive you got to be, be humble. you got to be seeking and say, Lord, I don't know everything. I don't know the best way to bring you glory. So be, let's be humble before the Spirit. And that can happen through a sermon or a word of God as you're reading or, or, or even through a prophecy, which he says in this verse, he says, do not despise prophecies. And essentially what he said, what prophecies in this context means to declare something that the Spirit, the Spirit brings to your mind. So it's not it's different than theopnutos, those things that are God-breathed. It's, it's the, for example, as I'm studying the, the, the scriptures and trying to understand, I'm praying and saying, Lord, help me, to, help me to understand what this is saying. Help me to communicate this well to your people. And the Lord will bring things to, to my mind. And I'll study that and say, okay, is that really me? Or is that, am I just making that up? Does that really work? The Spirit will reveal things to you. But because the words themselves, as you're declaring them, are not themselves God-breathed, there could be errors in it. I could make a mistake. I could misphrase it wrong. I could misunderstand what the Spirit is actually saying or communicating through us. And so there's a need to test that, right, to make sure that it actually lines up. And again, the Spirit is about Jesus. So if someone comes along and says something that doesn't line up with glorifying Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up to the standard, the rule book, and I'm going to test it. I'm going to say, does that look like it brings glory to Jesus. Does that line up with what the Spirit's really about? And if it doesn't, you got to go. But if it does, I'm going to be sensitive. I'm going to listen. I'm not going to quench the Spirit. So we use the Word of God, knowing the nature of the Spirit of God, to test these things as the Spirit moves among His church. But you got to be sensitive. Don't despise the move of the Spirit. The Spirit can show up and destroy your agenda. He can show up and say, you know what? There I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep you all worshiping for another 20 minutes. And you've got to be sensitive to that. You can't be so focused on we've got to keep the program moving that you miss the fact that the Spirit is trying to do something. Okay? So he's saying don't quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And then he says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. An authentic legacy is established by holiness. We are a gracious people. We are people who love, who, who are patient with them all, as the verse talks about when caring with need. But we are also a distinct people, that God has purchased us and made us holy by his blood. Titus 2 and 14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. God has made you clean. You have been set apart you are distinct. You are a royal priesthood. You are holy to the Lord. And so there has to be a commitment, a firm commitment to holiness, to dealing with sin, to removing it if it comes in and tries to corrupt the church. Because Revelations 2, chapter 19, Christ says to a church, he commends the church in Thyatira for, 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 for many things. And he says to them, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who we think is actually a real, was a, a real person in this context, who calls herself a prophetess, remember that testing? Who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants 
to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jesus says, you're, you're, he commends them, but then he says, you're tolerating sin. I have, I, I, have, I have purified you. I have redeemed you to myself. And you, you, you don't look like that. So he calls them to repent, to, to not tolerate sin in their midst. And so he calls them, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Because that, again, that will corrupt the legacy. When you stand before Jesus, we want to be a holy people before him, a bride that, that's just dressed in white before her groom. Amen? And final two points, uh, verse 23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. One of the beauties of the Christian life is that God himself is the one who keeps us. The legacy is not our legacy. It's the legacy of Christ. And so when he calls you to these things, he's not calling you to accomplish it by yourself. He's saying, I have built a legacy for you. I have declared you to be my people. And so look like what you really are. Walk in these things because I have established it. And he says, he himself, he calls you his faithful. He will surely do it. We can trust in God. As we, as we pray and, and cry out for direction, we can rest in the fact that if this is really God's church and we are sensitive to his spirit and we're walking with him, he will keep us. He's faithful. He's faithful to accomplish his legacy for his glory. And then finally, verse 27, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. An authentic legacy is established through God's word. That the church of God will fall apart. You, you, will, you will completely miss the mark if the word of God is not preached and prioritized and taught and gone through and, and, and poured over and studied and loved and it's all throughout us. The word of God has to be, it's our food. It feeds us, it keeps us. And so the word of God has to be part of what it means to have an, an authentic legacy. And so just to, just to recap, right? An authentic legacy of standing before Jesus and being, and being able to, 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 to be proud, to have a crown of joy. An authentic legacy is established through biblical respect for biblical leadership, through a community marked by peace, care, and grace, through joyful, thankful prayer, to being, through being sensitive to the Spirit of God, through holiness. It's established by God's faithfulness, and it's established through God's Word. And so my prayer, and I pray that it's your prayer as well, that we would be marked by these things so that long after we are gone, a legacy would have been built and Jesus himself can be proud of Epiphany Fellowship. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, the call to be on mission with you, the call to, to be a part of what you have been doing for, from eternity past. You have purpose to redeem a people for yourself, and you have done it. And you call us to participate in that, to, to walk with you through it. And so we pray, Lord, that as only you can, we, we, are, we are limited people, but you are limitless. And so we pray that you would keep us, that you would be the one that, that keeps us practicing these things that helps us to look like what we really are. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for me making us a people. Um, keep us ever um, in your presence and loving you. In your name we pray. Amen.